Welcome to Radical Resilience, the podcast. I'm your host, Pega Kadkodian. Resilience is more than just learning to bounce back from adversity. It is both a spiritual and practical journey of returning to the essence of who you are. With Radical Resilience, life can throw anything at you, and no matter how tossed around you get, no matter how hard you fall, you have the ability to get back up and come home to yourself. Hear the inspirational stories of women who embody radical resilience and learn the resources you need to reclaim your passion, purpose, and power. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Radical Resilience, the podcast. I'm so glad to be here with you today. I am joined by one of my very favorite people in the whole wide world. Her name is Adele Mason, and she's someone who I met through a coaching program that we both actually became involved in. It was one of those situations where you have an instant soul recognition with someone, and there's a, a connection that goes beyond anything you could explain using words. So it's my pleasure to introduce you to Miss Adele Mason. Hi, Adele. Welcome. Thank you so much. That kind of left me speechless. So I feel exactly the same and I'm truly honored and excited to be here. I really appreciate your willingness to come on the show and share with us your story because I think it is one that so many people can relate to whether or not they identify um, this way. And especially in the day and age of COVID and quarantine, what you're going to share with us today is something that is really prevalent and maybe not talked about as much as it should be. Uh, so if you would just share with our listeners your journey of grappling with the experience of addiction. That's always a tough question. How does it begin? I mean, does it begin, you know, generations ago? I, I know, you know, um, I know we know that uh, my great grandfather was was an alcoholic. We just don't know back any farther than that. Um, and then every generation since um, has struggled with um, addictive uh, behavior of of some sort. I am an alcoholic. I'm lucky enough that by the grace of my higher power, which I choose to call God, I've been sober for. Uh, two years and one month and five days <laughs> to do the math. You know, it's always hard to know. I mean, and I would certainly count my, myself in this group. I call it the terrible trifecta. Substance use, mood disorder, and often but not always from abuse. Where does it start? I don't remember my first drink. I just know that I never drank without effect. And I always felt as though... Some people drink and they feel that it alters something. I drank and I felt that it put something to rights, um, you know, as, as though I felt normal. Um, and I was, you know, I'm, I'm not very, you've seen me in person, I'm not very big, not very tall. Um, and I was a runner and a lifeguard. So I had a, you know, lightning quick metabolism. So it went straight to my head. I mean, two drinks in and I was, you know, loaded. Through my university years, my undergraduate years anyway, I never drank. It just sort of didn't occur to me. And then... Um, in January 2004, as a newlywed, I dove into the bottom of a bottle, and uh, there I stayed until November 2007. I had just left my PhD program. My then husband, who was uh, going to be coming up to tenure um, about nine months from then, said the next nine months of, are the most important nine months of my career, and I could lose everything if you don't stop. So I stopped, but I was what we call a dry drunk. I didn't do any work. I just stopped drinking. And that was uh, my first sober day was uh, November 24th. 
2007 and uh, on November 23rd, 2008, our daughter was born. In March 2010, I started drinking again and I drank without, you know, concern for the better part of four and a half years. Um, and then in the summer uh, and fall of 2014, the balance started to tip again. I, I had run my first half marathon. I ran it in, in my hometown of Ottawa. You know, there's a line in Deep Blue Sea about you wait your whole life for a single moment and then one day it's tomorrow. My whole life I had wanted to run a distance race like that. And then one day the race was run. <laughs> race was over. You know, there were a few things I cared more about uh, besides alcohol, but one of them was my daughter and one of them was running. That race and that training plan and the structure and the rigor of the training plan kept my drinking at bay, but then it was over. And that combined with, um, I had a, a friendship that was very important to me and it deteriorated and um, I got pneumonia, so I couldn't run at all, never mind. <laughs> you know, the absence of a training program. And we had a terrible health scare with my father and the balance started to tip. In the summer of 2016, I went to rehab, uh, private rehab. I was sober for less than a month after I got out. Um, by that time, I was drinking mouthwash regularly. In addition to, I had tried rubbing alcohol, but it doesn't taste very good. It doesn't feel very good. Um, I didn't care too much about the taste or I wouldn't have been drinking mouthwash, but um, um, I didn't like how it felt. I was curious what it was that compelled you to go to rehab the first time. Um, my husband was getting fed up. I, I knew something was wrong. I mean, I, I, mean, I had long, I, I, addiction takes many forms and, and denial, um, is a part of it for many of us. My denial had long passed, but the week before I went to rehab, I got in the car and I was so drunk that I just drove to the convenience store. It was, I don't know, three, four blocks from home, but I was so drunk that it took every ounce of strength I had in both arms to control the car. And like the only reason I don't have a DUI is because I wasn't caught. I never drove drunk with my daughter in the car. Although when I look back now, there was a morning or two when I had had so much to drink the night before, I probably still had alcohol in my system, but I was just so drunk that it was all I could do to control the car. And I thought, I'm in free fall. And I, I remember how I felt that April and May. And I just, it was, I mean, lots of things have happened that have been terrible since then, but it was the worst time in my life. I just absolutely felt like I was in free fall. And so I went to rehab and um, I have to be careful about this because in a lifetime of the pain that leads you into addiction and in, a light, and in the years of damage that you do to your brain, 28 days is not a long time. And it wasn't enough for me. I didn't understand enough about recovery. I hadn't um, had enough time to be honest with myself about what was really going on. Like, of course I didn't stay, so like, like, no shit. Like, hello, of course I didn't stay sober. And I was drinking, I mean, I got out at the end of August and my brother got married on October 15th. And by the time, you know, and he had to have a talk with me about, please don't drink at my wedding. I didn't. I did, however, throw up in the bathroom the day of his wedding because I was so hungover from the night before. Like, it was just, it was bizarre. So it had gotten to a point that others were aware of it and concerned for you? Certainly my immediate family. Um, the cracks were starting to show. Um, but there was a division because my husband kicked me out in February of 2017, uh, without warning, there was just, um, this marriage is over and you can leave. And 
So just as the cracks were starting to show in one city, um, I left and went 500 kilometers, came 500 kilometers, you know, home to my hometown. Um, and there I have remained and haven't ever returned to, to Southern Ontario. Um, but I was, I was a stranger, you know, having been away from home for 20 years, I was a stranger. So it was much more obvious, but nobody knew who I was. Um, and it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And I drank more and more and more. Um, and at this point, where are your kids? My daughter was with me. Um, we were lucky enough that my parents um, took us in. I mean, what do you do when you're kicked out of your home? You, you pack up your baby and your books and your, I packed up my life in garbage bags and everything that I could fit into the back of two uh, Hondas. And um, I moved her and our stuff back into the house where I grew up. And for the next 17 months, I proceeded to get much, much worse. Um, I'm very lucky that um, I was able to hide almost all of it from her. I always saw it as my responsibility to protect her from my demons, you know, from my darkness, but she was getting older and the cracks were starting to show. And um, she does remember a few things and that's hard. That's gotta be really difficult for you as a mama. Um, what was the defining moment, the turning point that had you say, that's enough? The, the arrogance, right? I tried to pick my bottom so many times. <laughs> Like it's Monday, you know, it's the first, it's the 15th, like just this, like you don't get to do that, right? The last night of my drinking, I was engaged in this pattern that I had done a zillion times. I had this terrible, toxic, awful relationship with a, with a, another um, person who was active in addiction. And I did the same thing over and over. I would get drunk at home, take a cab or an Uber to his place, drink at a nearby bar, go over to his place, fight with him like it was just it was ridiculous this night though this is july of, of 2018 i had had a meltdown in june and been in the hospital for 10 days and i had had 17 days sober and been put on an, an antidepressant and and i remember that things felt a bit calmer and in that intervening month i had been at a day hospital we weren't supposed to be drinking I was drinking, but I was learning some things. And I think that I was healing a little bit. And so on this night, I made a, very, I made a different decision, which changed everything. Instead, I was drunk at my house and I was fully intending to go over to his place. And I did, but I let my mother drive me. And um, he didn't answer the door, which sent me you know, into a tailspin. I was, just in a, I was drunk, 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 and just in a rage. But my mother was right with me and I kept saying to her, I'm not handling this well. I need to go to the hospital. You need to call an ambulance. I went to a bar, but I, went, I also went to a different bar, which my behavior that night is very interesting to me because I, like, none of these decisions were conscious, right? I was the furthest thing from thinking straight. I was just hammered. Went to a different bar. I remember throwing things, being furious. I don't know why, why I was furious or what I was throwing things at or at who or what. And I took off, I left everything, you know, including my shoes behind, went back to his apartment, took off screaming and yelling and, you know, drunk out of my mind back through the streets. And my mother, unbeknownst to me, called the police, went back to his apartment and he didn't answer the door. And I remember like it was late and I was all by myself and 
no one was coming. And I remember thinking, this is it. This is the bottom that's going to make me stop. And it was like watching my life in a split screen. I was loaded and furious, but this other part of me was just sort of sagging with relief thinking, this is what rock bottom feels like. I'm completely, totally powerless and I'm in danger. I have no money, no phone, no one's coming. No one knows where I am. I don't know what to do. I'm completely, totally powerless. And I took off down this long driveway and four police cars surrounded me and this officer got out. And I wish somehow I'm going to find that officer somehow. He got out and he looked at me and he said, we're here to help you. What do you need? And I was going to, because I'm a fighter, I was just going to mouth off at him. And all of a sudden I just, I, I, I bet I physically sort of caved in, but I remember saying like, I need help. I, I, I need help. I'm done. I need to go to the hospital. And I raised my hands over my head and, and that was it. I climbed into the back of the cruiser in my bare feet and just like, it was like something out of a movie. And then all of a sudden you have to ask my parents if his memory is accurate, but my memory is climbing back into the cruiser. And then just as I did somehow, my parents somehow found the police from, it's not hard to spot two police cars, four police cars in the middle of a hot summer night, found the police at the same time. And so I was driven to the back to the hospital in the back of my parents' CRV, still drunk, still in my bare feet. But there's something else that's interesting. I didn't speak for about two hours. And anybody who's studied deeply into trauma knows about Broca's area and how it will shut down. Trauma affects that area. And I think I knew, I must have known deeply on this body level that I was, alcohol was no longer gonna be a part of my life because I didn't speak. And then eventually I just started to speak and I just, that was it. I knew I was done with alcohol. Wow. Awful as that scene sounds, if you describe it, what strikes me is that it was just this moment of absolute surrender. And the other thing that really stands out as you've described this journey is that there was a part of you that was actively seeking bottom where you were like, is this the bottom? Is this the bottom? Where there was almost a part of you that was seeking that moment where ultimate surrender could occur. Yeah. You know, where you're like literal hands in the air going, I give up. Yeah. And there is really something potent and powerful about that. And I would say, you know, having interviewed a number of people and certainly worked with so many women in particular in the area of resilience and crisis that that moment of surrender, that defining moment when the hands go up in the midst of whatever the crisis is, is probably the most important moment of all. Because it's in that moment that, and I'll just say this freely because it's a part of my work and I know, you know, if you're listening, put this into whatever terminology suits your model of the world, but it's really in that moment that you give it over to God which is a lot of your understanding where you go, I can't rightly do this anymore, or I can't do this alone, or, you know, I'm going Mm -hmm. to give this over to you, creator, the most high, you know, whatever you want to call that, that moment where you're, you're literally on your knees. So I think that's incredible. And what I hear so often Mm -hmm. when I work with folks in this area of, of trauma and crisis and, resilience ultimately, is that that seems to be a theme or a thread for most people where there is that sort of on your knees, I gave it over to God moment where then the healing can begin. It's true. I mean, I, 
I was desperate. I wanted to want to stop drinking, but I didn't want to stop drinking. And then that night I understood that I had to. And I also knew, I just knew, I, I knew, I knew that it was over. I knew down to my bones. And then the other thing that's really interesting is, and then I started to cry and I cried. Oh my God. I cried for almost 22 months. I cried and cried and cried and cried. I remember texting people and saying, there's really something wrong with me. Like there's really something wrong with them and saying, no, this, this is recovery. The people who stay in recovery are the people who cry. <laughs> I think that's so important for people to hear because we, emotions get such a, such an interesting you know, have such an interesting stigma in our culture, you know, we're so quick. I mean, effectively what we do with things like alcohol or food or sex or drugs or anything that we're becoming, become addicted to even our, our phones is that we're trying to numb those very real emotions that are begging to get processed and moved out of the body. And so I, I, what an important thing to highlight that you gave yourself permission for as long as it was necessary for you to allow those emotions to come out and be processed. And, you know, you had a certain number of tears that had to be cried in that recovery process and you let yourself cry them. So, but here's what else is important though. And this is the importance of a recovery community and whether that is, you know, and I have no patience with, with, you know, people who say, you know, it must be AA or it must be smart recovery. No, what it must be is a community. And what's important also is that I had a lot of people also giving me permission and saying, I cried too. You must cry. Here's my tales of crying. I cried at stoplights. I cried here. I cried there. And so because I, I heard their voices, you know, I can remember one time being at the grocery store, which is a five minute drive on a bad day from my house. And it was, I could feel it was like a tidal wave coming over me. And I texted my mom and said, it's starting again. And my only hope was that I could get home before it sort of overtook me. But I I had no choice but to just let it come. And I, I did. I cried off and on for almost 22 months. I mean, like that book, The Body Keeps the Score. Well, clearly my body had kept the score, you know? So there was the community. What would you say were the other most important pieces of the puzzle for your recovery and and your resilience? For me personally, a community has been huge. I mean, we, we absolutely cannot recover alone. There's no question. Addiction is too big and too complex um, and too painful. We, sim- we just cannot recover alone. Um, I call it a dream team. You know, you have to have a dream team. For me personally, I have a naturally... Um, chaotic turbulent mind and inner world and it was a real turning point for me when i realized that if i sat around waiting for inner calm before i lived in a healthy way it would be like waiting for godot like it would never happen i needed to learn to live alongside my inner turbulence and do the things anyway and my capacity to create and maintain structure um, in my life has been an absolute saving grace for me. It's one of the things that got me through grad school. There's a, there's a terrible failure rate in, in 
uh, masters and PhD programs. And it's got nothing to do with lack of intelligence and everything to do with not being able to put structure in your day. And that's why I did well. And I mean, I drank my ass off through grad school. I did well because I could put structure in my day. So that's been a huge thing. The structure. And it sounds like some level of consistency. Yes. And leaning in, and my terminology is unconditional acceptance, but just saying, this is what it is. This is my inner world. I'm going to function with it. And certainly I'm, I'm sure there were folks who assisted and helped in terms of how to be with that, but the acceptance that this is, For sure. this is how it is. And I have to function with it. Yep. I have to function with it. I had another talk about surrender and acceptance. Um, I was really brought to my knees in late March um, by quarantine. It really brought out um, some trauma and I had a, a moment of real surrender with that. Um, and I was finally diagnosed, um, it was long overdue with complex PTSD um, and trauma therapy has been a game changer. But the more that you accept, what I always say to people is that your behavior is information and your behavior is communication and everything that we do makes perfect sense. It's always in alignment with where we are inside. So take the shame out of it and the judgment out of it. Let's just look, this is a social scientist in me, right? Because I have an MA in sociology. Let's just look at what's going on, whether it's relapse or anything else, and take this as data points. What information is this giving us about where, where you're at inside and what do we need to shift internally? Whether it's you know sur surrendering to it and accepting it, or just simply taking it as information, which is neutral, not you suck, and, you know, I, I, you know, you need to be ashamed of yourself because you suck. It's just simply information that we need to look at. Um, the other thing, I mean, I have a very strong faith um, and I always have. But something that's been really interesting for me is that there's a book by the author of Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood called Little Altars Everywhere. I love that title because I just think that, you know, God is in the little things. And for me... I mean, especially when I was in active addiction, but I would, and you know, because of the nature of my brain, it, I used to talk about, you know, it'd be like standing next to a roaring freight train and getting better and healing has been like, God turned down the volume on the world. And there are these moments, usually every day where at some point I become aware of this complete and profound silence. And to me, God is in that silence, you know, like just seeking the silence and the stillness and Sometimes I seek it, but often it just sort of seems to find me, you know? That's so right. That's so beautiful. God is in the silence and the stillness. Sometimes I seek it, but usually it just finds me. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for that. So we've got consistency, structure, acceptance, of faith and surrender to the divine. And, you know, something you said earlier struck me, which is that you're running with something that kept the drinking at bay, having that uh, structure of self-care in place seems to me like it was, it was really uh, an important factor early on in terms of keeping things at bay, but certainly now um, in recovery. Would you agree? Definitely. Um, running, I haven't been running too much lately, but running has been, I always say the road is my safe place to feel hard things. And um, you know, I can go out on the road and mm. my iPad, my iPod has the most eclectic, like I've got, you know, Christian classical hymns right up against like Shaggy and Vanilla Ice. It is the most Celtic woman. It is the most random collection, but it works for me. And I just put it on shuffle and go running. And the music just 
does what it does and goes where it goes. And um, I can feel and work through things when I'm running that I would be sort of too emotionally flooded with to deal with when I, when I, you know, at any other time and talk about spirituality. It doesn't seem spiritual because you're in Lycra and you smell and all that. But to me, one of the most holy and sacred things that I can do is leave in the dark and at a very, and of course it changes with the seasons, especially here in Canada, but leave in the dark and time it so that I'm running into the light. Like to me, like that Rumi quote about there's hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Like to me, that is a way that I kneel and kiss the ground is to go out and run into the sunrise. Oh, I love that. Absolutely. And I, I can, I can so relate to that idea of running being this meditative, spiritual oh, totally. uh, space. So your life now, you're in an amazing relationship. I am. <laughs> it's good. I'm not on camera. Cause look at my, like, <laughs> look at my dorky grin. Yeah. Yeah. So for those of you listening, she's <laughs> grinning from ear to ear. You're, you're an amazing, you're in an amazing relationship with, with, the current love of your life, you're, you're building a business and relationship yes. with your kids is great. I, um, I have one and he has two. So, so we're, uh, <laughs> we're a Brady bunch of five and um, you know, it's, it's been wonderful with, with my, with my own daughter. Um, it, my partner is also in recovery with my daughter. You know, I, I'm very lucky that I got sober before she was really collateral damage. Um, we have a very um, open relationship about uh, my past with addiction. Um, you know, she knows that mommy's an alcoholic and mommy needs to do the things, you know, to maintain her sobriety. Um, you know, she's up against a lot genetically because there's a long family history. Um, so we talk um, freely and openly. And, and I, I, I don't believe in absolutes in parenting or very few of them anyway. Um, so, you know, I always say to her, you know, um, I understand that you'll probably experiment with alcohol and marijuana and all those things. Um, but I hope you understand fully, you know, the, the family history. And there is a little bit on her father's side as well. Um, but I feel, um, I mean, we're not supposed to get sober for other people. Um, you know, in, in the end, you know, you should, you should always be sober for yourself. But we all have our why. Um, and most of us, when all is said and done, get sober for our kids and, uh, sobriety gave that little girl her mother back and she sees me laughing. She sees me safe. She sees me in love. She sees me in the kitchen. Um, she sees me, you know, clucking at her about tidying up, you know, tidying her room. She, I'm returned to the mother that I, I was for most of her life. And, um, she deserves that. She deserves that. Yeah. I mean, that's beautiful. And, you know, whether you have kids or not, you know, we all have our, our reason for our why for getting up uh, out of bed every day, whether it's our loved ones, um, or, you know, our kids or, or just our, our, our bigger sort of reason for being here, you know? Um, so I'm going to jump to a few rapid fire questions to wrap up. I want to thank you so much for being so open and, and sharing so freely and vulnerably with our listeners, because again, I, I don't think that addiction is something that uh, we often talk about. And I know you're very active in the recovery community. I know that uh, a big part of your, your business is in supporting folks who are going through recovery and addiction. Um, 
in terms of coaching them and, and supporting them in that process. And so certainly if you want more information on how to get in touch with Adele, all of that will be in the show notes um, so that you can reach out to her. And, you know, if you are uncertain whether you are grappling with addiction or you think you might be, you know, would highly, highly encourage you to reach out and, and get the help that you need. I think, again, so many people in quarantine right now are grappling with that. And, and I just want to emphasize that there is no shame in reaching out and saying, I'm not even sure if I'm dealing with addiction right now, but I might be, and I need help. Absolutely. And, and I also want to make a really important point, which is not made often enough, which is it doesn't have to be either or. You do not have to say, I'm an alcoholic, or to be an alcoholic, to have a problem with alcohol, and to be a person for whom not drinking is the best decision. The majority of people who have a problem with alcohol or drugs are actually not what would be clinically defined as alcoholics or drug addicts. They fall on the spectrum of substance use disorder. So we need to start to pull that apart. I have an issue with drinking. I should probably stop drinking. Doesn't automatically put an equal sign between you and alcoholism. Yeah, I think there's, just such, there's such a stigma around that. So Oh, for sure. You know. In my case, for sure, alcoholic, 100%. I'm okay with that. But don't some, some people come out at the back end and think, oh, I need to stop drinking. That, that makes me an alcoholic. No. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that point. Um, so bottom line, everybody, Adele has, is, is really an incredible embodiment of resilience and perseverance and determination um, because I see her now and she is absolutely um, thriving. Although, you know, as anyone who is human um, is going to experience, we all still have the things that we continue to grapple with. I always like to say it's never done. You can never get it right and it's never done. It's an ongoing, very evolving spiritual unfolding that we're going through in this lifetime. So we can be thriving and still, you know, uh, be doing our work. We can be thriving, thriving and, striving. And, striving and struggling. We can be thriving and struggling simultaneously. And that's why we, you know, um, that's why I work with coaches and, and healing practitioners myself. And that's why I do the work with the, with the folks that I do and Adele as well. So, you know, just know that they are not mutually exclusive. You can be thriving and still be doing your work. Uh, in fact, that's, that's, I would say, ultimately what we're, what we're going for is this idea of thriving and continuing to level up or thriving and continuing to unpack um, and uh, unload the aspects of us that keep us from really being connected to uh, who we are on a regular basis, that, that essential yeah. self, the God self, if you will. So if I may, I have a few rapid fire questions here at the okay. end I like to ask. Um, I know we talked about this already, but if you could, you know, in one word, say, uh, what was one thing that you did to cultivate your inner resilience in a word? How is that a one word? Oh, consistency. Love it. Consistency. Um, what is your favorite self-care practice? Uh, running. Your three favorite personal development or spiritual teachers, living or deceased? Hmm. Glennon Doyle, for sure. Love her. Um, Rebecca Jameson, 
who wouldn't necessarily be considered a spiritual development or personal development person, but um, she wrote an incredible book on called The Recovering, which had a huge impact on me. Um, and I would say Lynn Twist, who wrote a book called The Soul of Money that really changed forever how I see and interact with money. I read it when I was about 25. Who is in your power posse? And here's what I mean by this. You're about to walk into a challenging situation. Uh, whose energies do you call upon to support you in that moment? Matt, my partner, uh, my parents, um, my friend Arwen, a couple of other um, sisters in, in like who are older, um, real mentors and you know, sort of pillars in recovery. I certainly pray to a higher power. Um, I sometimes talk to my paternal grandmother. I never met her. She died before I was born, but I feel very connected to her. Apparently, I'm quite a lot like her. Um, I'm the I'm the firstborn daughter of, of her youngest last baby. So what are your top three all-time favorite books? Oh, The Great Gatsby, Born to Run. I've read it like a zillion times. And uh, I would have an awful time coming up with like, it'd be a toss up with, with number three. I will say that I tend to read in themes um, so I read like in, in rapid succession last summer, I read City of Girls, Educated, The Great Alone, and Where the Crawdads Sing, because they're all about women, particularly the last three are all about women and, you know, these odysseys of challenge. I love that. I'm, I'm the same way too. I get on these kicks about things. In a sentence, what would you tell your younger self with the wisdom you've acquired now? Okay, so this always shocks people until they until they understand what I what I mean. But what I would say is, shut up, because because I'm first of all I'm very extroverted, and secondly, because of reasons that I'm now understanding are actually related to trauma, I sort of needed to take command and be in charge of a conversation. But it's okay to just be quiet, and it's amazing what you learn from other people when you just shut up and listen. All right, we'll go with shh. I'm sure your younger self would appreciate. My younger self would mouth off at that and be all mad and slam doors and. <laughs> well, listen, I am so grateful you have come on and shared your story. And my hope and my prayer is that if you are listening to this, that it gives you a sense of inspiration um, and, and permission to heal if you're someone who's struggling with addiction to reach out for help. And if you're someone who can hear yourself inside of the story in any way that it uplifts your spirit, gives you hope and lets you know that A, you're not alone and B, you can persevere and ultimately come out the other side of this stronger and thriving. So I will of course include all the wonderful ways in which people can get a hold of you um, should they wanna reach out. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Please feel free to share this with someone who you think would um, enjoy it or benefit from it. We'll be back again soon with another episode of Radical Resilience, the podcast with so much love, light, and aloha. Namaste. I'm Pega Kadkodian. Thank you for listening to Radical Resilience, the podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Be sure to go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and rate. And remember to share this with all the amazing women in your life. Join us next week for another episode of Radical Resilience, the podcast.